0: You're listening to the Peace Corner podcast. In each episode, we talk to a different peace builder, working in a different region, telling a different story. To hear more, please click subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and more. Let's take you back to September 25th, 2015. All the world leaders have gathered at the United Nations Sustainable Development Summit in New York. It is here where they would draw up a blueprint of great importance for the upcoming 15 years. A blueprint of global action for peace and prosperity. Promise us that you will keep your commitments and invest in
1: our future. 17 Sustainable Development Goals are our guide and the blueprint for success. May I take it? that the Assembly wishes to adopt Draft Resolution A-70-L1. It is so decided.
0: Now, almost four years later, we are still faced with mass poverty, refugee flows and the collapse of icebergs. So what has happened so far and what should still be done? How can we make sure that all 17 Sustainable Development Goals are actually achieved in the next 10 years? And why should the peacebuilding community care about the SDGs? To find out, we sat down with Deborah Seward, the director of the United Nations Regional Information Centre. In this spot, she will share her perspective on the impact of the global SDG framework, the role of states around the world to implement this agenda, and the link between the 17 goals and local activities. So through this podcast, we are interested in knowing what actually drives people to work for peace. So my first question for you was if you would like to share what your motivation was to start working in this field.
1: Uh, Thank you very much for having me uh, on the podcast. I'm really delighted to be with you. Before I joined the United Nations in 2011, I was a foreign correspondent uh, for many years. And for about 10 years, I worked in the former Soviet Union where I covered some of the conflicts that erupted after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And they included the, the conflict in Tajikistan, uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Chechnya. And it was in those conflicts that I first came across directly uh, people from the UN, staffers from the United Nations and the United Nations system, who were trying to improve the lives of people there, and in their way contribute to, to the building of peace in these fragile societies. And my job as a correspondent, as a reporter, was to write about these conflicts, to observe them. And at a certain point, it occurred to me that I really, I was inspired by the work of these people, by the people themselves, and I wanted to do more than just describe what I was seeing. So I started to explore ways to join the UN and I joined uh, the Department of Public Information in 2011 and have been working with the UN ever since.
0: And it was really
1: the inspiration of staff on the ground making a difference in the lives of people that uh, made me do something different and try to make a contribution.
0: Okay, yeah, I can imagine that it's very uh, inspirational and quite impactful work, of course. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, and then, for uh, on the UN website, of, on the Sustainable Development Goals, it states that in order to make the 2030 agenda a reality, board ownership of the SDGs must translate into a strong commitment by all stakeholders to implement the global goals. So, to open up our discussion, I would like to ask why we need such a global framework for sustainable development. Specifically because uh, in some particular countries, um, they may not be struggling with the issues mentioned in the agenda at all. So, if they not directly experience conflict, poverty or hunger, why should they still care about the sustainable development goals?
1: Well, for those countries, for example, that were not covered by the Millennium Development Goals, which were started in 2000, All societies face issues that are inherent to the Sustainable Development Goals. Even here in Europe, we have strong pockets of poverty. There are people who don't get a good education. There are people who don't know their basic rights. And if they don't know them, then they can't participate in our own societies. So I think that when the Sustainable Development Goals, when it was decided uh, back in Rio in 2012 that they should be developed, there was a real consideration given to the fact that they should be global, uh, that they affect all societies, and that all of our societies in many ways have people who come from other societies, who come from countries where there is conflict. If you take a look at Europe right now, there are refugees, there are migrants, uh, and they have direct uh, experience of what has been happening in Asia and Africa or in Latin America. And Europe is not excluded. If we take a look at the Balkans back in the 1990s, there was conflict here as well. So when the SDGs Agenda 2030 came about, Uh, there was, among the member states that were doing the negotiation for the creation of the goals, a look at how they were linked, how gender was linked to conflict, how education is linked to conflict, health, water, uh, all of these things are interlinked. And to put them together uh, in a way that it is the responsibility of all 7 billion people on the planet Uh, to take charge or take responsibility for their implementation. And then perhaps uh, later on in our discussion or our conversation, we'll get into that. But there is a responsibility of, uh, in the financing for development framework, of those member states or those countries that are better off uh, to try to help those uh, that aren't as well off, because uh, we, we do have to keep in mind that Uh, achieving these goals doesn't come for free, it costs money. Uh, And we have to look uh, as well at the resource and the resource mobilization aspect of the implementation of Agenda 2030.
0: Okay. Yes, I think that's very um, well-worded. And I would completely agree, actually. uh, It's impossible to imagine that these countries would develop forward uh, in isolation. And talking about these countries that are uh, less well-off, Um, they are experiencing the issues that were addressed in the 2030 Agenda. But they were already uh, working on all sorts uh, of activities to improve their situation on the ground. Many civil society organizations were already working towards more peaceful, just and inclusive societies before it even was mentioned in a global agenda. So what would be the added value of the framework for them?
1: That's a really good question. Uh, the civil society civil society plays such a crucial role uh, in these countries, in all countries, but also on the implementation of Agenda 2030. And I think that what is important about linking the two is, one, to use some jargon, but I think it's apt in this case, is scale. Uh, is that some of the civil society groups that are working, they're not big enough. They need to be connected to other civil society uh, organizations, to the member states, uh, to the people they're serving as well. And that the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030 give a common objective. uh, And they provide that overall umbrella, if you will, that allows us to share our experiences, uh, share our success, uh, and all of the civil society organizations that are working on the ground in countries to be able to see themselves and to see their success in the overall framework. And that is really critical uh, because then it becomes not just about uh, us or you, it becomes about the goals themselves and the people that we're serving. So the goals are... Uh, something that we have in common something that we can share Uh, they can be an engine they can be a common iconography if you will they can be used by everybody Uh, and to that extent uh, it helps increase the chances of success that by 2030 we can actually get there
0: okay so through this framework The UN is actually using this framework as a tool to unite people at different levels for the same goals.
1: That's exactly right. And one of the things that we do, for example, in communications, is not just from the member state or civil society or companies or policymakers, but take it down to its most basic level, uh, all the way down to children, uh, so that we can be able to. Uh, communicate the goals in a way that everybody understands and sees that they have a stake in them.
0: Okay, yeah I think it's very important and um, related to that regarding the ownership of very people at the local level the 2030 Agenda has been developed in the UN General Assembly and then adopted by its member states. However, it is often the civil society who takes up the end responsibility to really act as agents of change. So, if we are talking about relevant stakeholders, who has to commit to the Agenda and how does the UN ensure that there is broad ownership of the Agenda?
1: That's another excellent question. When the Sustainable Development Goals and the concepts were being developed, in contrast to the Millennium Development Goals, which were really much more of a top-down way of doing things, there was, uh, as you're aware, a broad global uh, consultation uh, with civil society, but also with the public in general, so that they could feed in their ideas. So that, as you mentioned, this is not just something that was developed in the UN by negotiators, adopted by the General Assembly, and then handed out uh, to uh, stakeholders such as civil society, companies, uh, schools, academia, to implement. So that's, that's really very, very important. Uh, I think that communications has a key role to play. Uh, in ensuring that it's not just uh, something that governments say that they are doing for you, because at the end, you know, 12, 11, uh, by 2030, the SDGs, whether or not they are a success, which we all hope that they are, will be on whether they make a difference at the local level. So that is really one of the challenge that challenges that all of us have, is making sure that in our local communities, in our cities, in our counties, in our states, that people actually know about them so that they don't remain uh, at such a high level or only in the level of aspiration, uh, that they don't really translate into the transformative action Uh, at the very local level that's required uh, in order to make them happen and that is where the the civil society and organizations like yourself uh, using the SDGs to help what you're doing uh, and in your communications to make sure that uh, all people see that they are for everybody and not just for somebody for somebody else if you will. Um, so that's a really critical and crucial point that you raise.
0: Okay, so from the ground up, there should also be input into the global agenda to actually make it happen.
1: Right, and that's where, and I think we, we probably you'll probably get to that, is that uh, when you have uh, the annual high-level political forum, which obviously is something that takes place at UN headquarters, that there is a place for the voices of the youth of civil society, of companies uh, that are doing things to incorporate the goals and incorporate the agenda into their supply chains, into the way that they do business, uh, so that it is, uh, there are these uh, ways of making a contribution and making sure that the experiences uh, of civil society, of the population of companies, academia, uh, is heard. and recognized when the review uh, of the goals happens on an annual basis.
0: Yes, actually it perfectly connects to my next question because uh, in preparation of the review of SDG 16 during the upcoming high-level political forum and the overall review uh, by the heads of states and government, our GPAC managing advisor Pascal Richard published an article. <laughs> which reflected on the 2030 agenda thus far. And in this article, the potential of the ECGs was emphasized both as a reflection of the work of local peace building and conflict prevention organizations, but also as an opportunity to integrate their experience in contributing to more peaceful, just and inclusive societies and sustainable development as a basis for broader SCG implementation. So he specifically noted that while many GPEC members supported and acknowledged that everything they do contributes to the SDG implementation, that accepting that everything we do contributes to the SDGs without integrating no- knowledge gained at the local level into reviews at the UN, leaves out an essential component for the meaningful implementation of the SDGs. The conscious effort to implement the goals in an integrated manner, which is necessary to build please. So, how does the UN actually ensure in practice that local experience are integrated in future broader SDG implementation? How does the UN collect experience of local communities and national initiatives?
1: So there are a number of ways, That is, um, he's absolutely right, Uh, and it is a complicated issue. But there are a number of ways that the UN uh, can bring in the experiences at the local level, at the regional level, and from all sorts of different actors. Uh, One of them has to do with communications, uh, and I think that's very good. Uh, That happens every year in Bonn with the Sustainable Development Action Campaign, which tries to bring uh, the voices and the experiences of civil society all together when they meet annually in Bonn and feed them back into the relevant entities uh, in uh, either UNDP or in the UN Secretariat or those managed in the HLPF process. So that's one way that it's done. Uh, Part of the UN reform, at least at the country level, that doesn't necessarily apply here in Western Europe, is to ensure that the resident coordinator system uh, and the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals does, in fact, connect directly with the actors on the ground, the local actors who are working on implementation. And that reform, uh, which started on the 1st of January this year, uh, it is a little bit earlier, to, a little bit early to be able to assess the impact, but it should make a difference in ensuring that the experiences and the successes. Uh, can be shared among countries uh, so that we aren't simply repeating, uh, repeating and starting from scratch everywhere. So I, I think we really need to pay attention uh, to the way that the reform itself can contribute to exactly what you're saying is, is how do you draw in those experiences and then make sure that in the you know, weeks, months, years to come uh, that they are shared and actually have an impact. Uh, and another way is, is obviously uh, the digital outreach that you do uh, and that we do and connecting all of these experiences uh, on our different platforms. Uh, I work in communications uh, so it is very critical for us to be able to connect our experiences and share them so that people can actually see it. And then when you take a look for example at the yearly uh, reports On progress uh, then it's really time for all of us to dig down into the details uh, into the indicators themselves and to pay attention to the statistics uh, and to the measuring of the progress and to be able to look boldly in the face of where we're not doing a good, good enough job or not doing well enough study why uh, and then figure out how it is that we can actually turn some of these numbers around and that's what's going to be important at this year's HLPF and then at the summits, both of them, both the Sustainable Development Summit at the heads of state level and the climate summit in September of this year.
0: So actually the UN is active, would you say that the UN is actively uh looking to engage and to communicate with these civil society organizations as well to gather these lessons learned and to interchange them uh, between countries. Um, Yeah, I was wondering how the UN approaches that then.
1: So, the UN uh, clearly is working very specifically at the country level, but this is where the regional organizations come in into the UN, uh, because they will be taking a look at what's going on regionally. Uh, so that if in Africa or Latin America or Asia wherever the uh, regional economic commissions are active uh, that they're also engaged uh, with those uh, who are uh, working on the ground so that we can draw them in. Organizations like yours are very important because you work closely in certain countries with um, on sustainability particularly in the peace and prevention area so I'm hoping and what I understand is, is that there should be a real impulse uh, this year uh, at the high-level political forum in the side events that are there and that particularly at the review uh, at the summit in September uh, to say that we need, uh, and the Secretary General himself uh, has said that it's urgent, that we have to inject a sense of urgency, that we have to reach out to all of the stakeholders. Uh, and that the repositioning of the UN development system to deliver uh, will be critical uh, in this aspect.
0: Okay, I would completely agree that especially uh, network organisations are essential for creating uh, entry points to this global fora to to reflect and to uh, see what lessons are learned. Um, And... um, in relation to the communication as well, I was wondering what approaches are used to raise more local awareness of the SDG 16 framework.
1: So SDG 16 is one of the is is really very interesting, uh, and it's one that I am hoping uh, will get more attention paid to it, because the ones that we see, uh, you know, they're not one to 17, so 17 is not more important than one, and two is not more important than 16. Uh, But it is uh, the essential foundation uh, of, uh, or an essential building block, if you will, of the SDGs. I think in terms of communication, there's going to be a tremendous opportunity uh, in this year, but as we move into 2020, and that there will be a focus on Goal 16. uh, Because that will be uh, the 75th anniversary of the founding of the United Nations. Uh, and it will also be, and that includes the 75th anniversary uh, of the founding of the ICJ in the Hague. So we can anticipate, and I'm quite confident that this will be true, that there will be a, spe- a special emphasis uh, on peace and security. That doesn't mean that human rights uh, and development are any less important, but uh, there will be attention paid to the reasons why in 1945, That the United Nations was founded uh, and it was founded precisely uh, to be a forum and to bring about peace so that I think is exciting important uh, and it is essential for those of us including yourselves to make sure uh, that we speak out and see and show how goal 16 in particular is linked to the other ones the important, how goal 16 is linked uh, to goal 5 on gender equality and the the role that women play in preventing uh, conflict, uh, in uh, ensuring that conflicts end and then in the post-conflict phase Uh, education, uh, health, water, all of these things uh, some of these conflicts are as you know fueled uh, by some of the other goals by uh, uh, conflict over water or resources, water water resources, or desertification, so that we make sure that we can show people that there really is a concrete, real link between 16 and the others, and how, uh, in improving progress uh, on the others, uh, we enhance the chances for the achievement of Goal 16.
0: Okay, yes, of course, I'm very uh, excited to hear that um, peace and security and especially Goal 16 will be a huge priority in the coming year. Uh, But as you said, these goals are all interlinked and this has been acknowledged by many civil society organizations. And it has also been experienced within the GPAC network that multiple of these 17 goals are interlinked. Um, beyond Goal 17, multiple of the goals, such as Goal 5 on gender equality, as you mentioned, and Goal 13, for example, for climate actions, are together relevant for realizing these more peaceful societies in an inclusive gender and youth sensitive manner. So how does the UN ensure that these uh-huh. interlinkages between the goals are acknowledged as the agenda is taking forward?
1: That is a really good analysis. And a hard question, and I thank you for it. Uh, I think that for the UN, uh, one of the things that's really important, particularly for the Secretary General, is that uh, implementing the Sustainable Development Goals starts with us. Uh, so if you take them separately, even though they're integrated, uh, you try to do things that are within the UN itself whether it's gender equality, whether it's improving our workplace, you know, try to set an example in that way. But in terms of linking them, uh, our work in communications means that when we are doing events or when we are doing, for example, with civil society or panel discussions or whatever it is that we're doing when we're interacting with the public, we try not to do it with one partner alone. Uh, is to actually show uh, that uh, we, as the UN, are working together as different entities. For example, WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, working together with the World Food Program, working together with FAO on a project, so that we show that the UN itself, in terms of the many organizations that we have or the entities that we have, aren't just focused on one single goal that we are as a UN system, as a UN family addressing uh, whatever the issue is uh, not from our uh, individual perspective of wherever it is we work in the UN but that we're looking at it all all together and I think that that's really important because if we don't do it ourselves within the UN how can we possibly expect uh, people, external partners or civil society, governments cities to do that if we're not doing it ourselves. So that, that, that I think, is really important. Secondly, I think what it is, is that we have to show uh, uh, people how these things are interlinked. And there's there's a project, for example, that I think is a really good one um, that was taking place a couple of years ago in Armenia where there were school kids uh, who wanted to go to school. There were meals that were being provided by WFP, uh, but they had to cross uh, a small... it wasn't even a river, it was more like a stream. They needed a bridge. Uh, So that was infrastructure. So there was a way that was found to build a bridge that would cross uh, this stream uh, so that the children could go to school get an education and actually get a meal at the same time. So that links at least three goals. So we have to be able to provide concrete examples uh, of how these goals are interlinked because otherwise it would remain uh, a theoretical exercise uh, that isn't going to be able to have an impact on the daily lives of people, which is exactly what we want to do
0: okay i think first of all that it's great that you're setting the example for yourselves as well that this agenda should be broadly uh, integrated into everyday practices as well for next year the agenda will be celebrating its fifth anniversary already meaning that we're one third on the way towards 2030. in reflection of the past few years where do you believe progress on the agenda stands now have there been significant advancements And are the achievement of the 17 goals still, is it still feasible?
1: Well, first of all, I do think it's feasible. Uh, I think a lot more work has to be done. Uh, And we have to do a, uh, strengthen the measurement, uh, so that we can show concrete results. And we also have to strengthen the communication of those results, Uh, and not get discouraged if they're not as strong or positive as we would like them to be. It is very encouraging that after four years, next year it'll be five years, uh, that we already have good understanding uh, and good visibility uh, for the goals. I was involved in the team that was working on uh, the final results for the Millennium and communicating the final results for the Millennium Development Goals. And when we look back at that, uh, it took almost two years after those Millennium Development Goals were adopted in 2000 for them to even become known globally. We're a long way, uh, a much stronger start on that, but it is definitely... Uh, true uh, that in all countries uh, the progress uh, has not been as good uh, as it should be, not as good as it could be, and that we must uh, be invigorated and, and sit down, particularly this summer in July at the UN headquarters when we have the HLPF and again in September and say, these are the things that have worked. These are the things that are not working so well, So what is it that we can do uh, to accelerate the implementation? And when we have that look, and how can we use the 75th anniversary of the United Nations to actually uh, step up uh, the uh, urgency and to increase the engagement uh, in the achievement of the goals? So I wouldn't say that it's uh, the best picture possible. But some of the things are very encouraging, uh, even in Europe. And it is incumbent upon each one of us to incorporate the goals into our daily lives uh, and to make sure that we can do and find the ways that we can do uh, to work together uh, to, to step up the pace, if you will.
0: Okay, and relating to that, are you also calling upon uh, states to take responsibility and invest more into achieving these goals
1: i think that that will be the message of the secretary general uh, in september we are seeing from civil society we are seeing from young people uh, and we've all seen that particularly in the last couple of months in europe they are out there they understand the goals they understand the risks and the threats And they believe that the member states, even if the goals are not mandatory, have made a commitment and that they expect the commitments that the states have made to be made, to be carried out. And I think these are messages that I know from my colleagues here in Brussels that we have transmitted uh, to UN, to our colleagues in UN headquarters, is that uh, we can sound the clarion bell, we can raise awareness but the framework is there in terms of the Sustainable Development Goals. The same, the framework is there for the Paris Agreement. Uh, the framework is there for Addis Ababa and financing for development. It is incumbent on those who have been elected uh, by their citizens uh, to carry out their part of the responsibility and their part of the bargain as well.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, I uh, hope that we can... Uh, that we can uh, see uh, this uh, develop uh, positively in the future and that we, that these states will take up this uh, responsibility, uh, indeed, that they have. Um, so, I have two last questions for you to answer. Um, so, for this season we have added a couple of questions which will be asked each guest on our show in order to learn a bit more about the opinions and priorities of individual peace builders working in different areas of the world and how they compare. I would first like to ask what is something that you hope to see achieved in the world of peace building, globally or locally, within the next year?
1: So some of these conflicts are very long-standing. Uh, if I go back to the ones that I know, uh, they're still here. Uh, for example, we still have a frozen conflict in Nagorno karabakh uh, But we've seen this year uh, a really big step taken uh in the conflict between greece and the former yugoslav republic of macedonia with the name change that took a really long time but that was really exciting Uh, and it showed the commitment of a small group of u.n staffers working on that issue with civil society with the member states and not giving up so if there were something personally that i would like to see is that some of these conflicts uh, that in the grand scheme of things, are not as big as some of the wars that we know are going on in the world, that there can be some progress made uh, in them to give people who have been living with decades of conflict uh, a chance uh, in the year and the years to come uh, to see some kind of uh, perspective, some kind of hope uh, that they too uh, will be able uh, to live in a peaceful society.
0: I hope that people will be open to feel this hope indeed and um, be open to working uh, together positively to realize this uh, progress that you're talking about indeed. And then as a last question, if you could debunk one myth or common misconception about peace building, what would it be?
1: Well, I think that your organization does a really good job of it. I think it's really important for people to understand that peace doesn't come at the end of a conflict that the work for peace can be done and it has to be done every single day, even before conflicts break out. Uh, That is really critical because there is, uh, at least among some part of the population, that they think, okay, well, peace will come and we'll end the fighting and then we'll work on peace. That is actually not the case. It has to start Uh, long before we have to do a better job for example of recognizing the signals recognizing the symptoms, recognizing the small things that could actually lead to a big conflict and work together in partnership uh, and recognize that these warning signals uh, are real uh, and actually then take the steps to do something about them Because that is what happens in so many conflicts, is that many of them, they arise out of things that could have been dealt with uh, long before they turn into something that then is very difficult to resolve. Uh, And if I would say something going back to your previous question, is I think that that is where the work that I do uh, in communications and at our center here in Brussels is partnerships, Uh, to prevent peace, partnerships to recognize those things that could lead uh, to conflict, because it is better for people, it's more cost-effective, it leads to a better outcome. Uh, If we start to recognize and take the steps to prevent a conflict long before it breaks breaks out into something that then is much harder uh, to end, uh, and years have gone by and children grow up to be adults uh, and they've never known anything else besides conflict. So that is what I think is, uh, that's a myth, that people think that it's over when it's over and that it starts, uh, that the process of peace starts when a conflict ends.
0: Yes, indeed. The work that you're doing is so important in communicating uh on this issue and indeed once the conflict is uh, is erupted it's already too late to act so it's way better to be to act timely to be preventive and and act before the uh, conflict erupts so i want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing and of course for taking the time to do this interview uh, with me to have this conversation so thank you so much
1: thank you it was a privilege and i look forward to working with you and your colleagues in the future
0: Thank you so much. It would be great if we uh, could collaborate in the future indeed. Thanks for listening to the second season of The Peace Corner. If you're interested in hearing more from us in the next season, please click subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you soon.